Well, hey, Anthem and Arise, good day to you. Thanks for taking just a moment to watch or listen. You are probably watching or listening for one of two reasons. One, uh, you were with us this last Sunday and just felt so compelled to dive in again, uh, talking about what we're talking about. Uh, more likely, number two is you were gathering with us online and realized very quickly there was no audio. Apologies for that. Um, so sorry that disrupted a bit of your morning. Thank you again for staying faithful and committed to gather with us even online. So this is for you. We want to make sure that you're still keeping tabs on where we're heading as two churches uh, through this series called The Devoted Church. And so we've been primarily rooting ourselves in the book of Acts chapter 22. So if you do have a Bible or a Bible app handy, go ahead and grab it. And I'm going to be reading uh, our teaching text, this last paragraph of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." I have a question for you. What do you think are some of the most important parts of the church gathering? Is it worship and singing? Is it prayer, prophecy, ministering to one another's community fellowship? Is it the sermon and the reading of scripture? What in history and in the New Testament seems to be the center point of the Christian worship gathering? Would it surprise you to learn that all signs point to the Lord's Supper as the center point of Christian worship in the gatherings? If you're new or newish to Arise and Anthem, um, we've been collaborating on this series called The Devoted Church. Essentially, what must the church be devoted to in and out of season? So what is the mandate on the church, no matter the politics, the culture, the time and place, whether you're high church, low church, charismatic, reformed, whatever, what are those core things the church must be devoted to in and out of season? And we've been using Acts 2 as this kind of reference point um, as the, the spark of the early church. What was most crucial to understand about the early church? And Luke unpacks for us what was so essential in those early days. And it was first and foremost devotion to Jesus. Now from our devotion to Jesus stems some practical outcomes and rhythms of the church. And so we've been into a few of them already. The early church was devoted to scripture. So from their devotion of Jesus, they're devoted to scripture. And last week we talked about how the church is devoted to each other. This idea of fellowship, of community, that we are relentlessly committed to each other, even though we're bound to hurt each other's feelings, even though we're bound to be flaky, even though we're bound to mess up relationships, we are relentlessly committed to each other because of the work of Christ. And today, what we are finding next in our text here is what the early church was devoted to was, quote, the breaking of bread. That's Acts 2.42. That's our teaching text, the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread is really interesting. It's a kind of a euphemism. It means both eating, to, eating and drinking together as believers and what we would now consider as communion, the bread and the cup. 
And the blurry lines here through Scripture are actually quite intentional. It wasn't until a little bit later that we started to separate what was eating and drinking as the family of God together and communion. They started much closer together and much more blurry lined. The Lord's Supper, communion, is at the core of the way of Jesus. And in the early church, there's little argument that it was the center of gravity in the weekly gatherings together. And eating and drinking together as the family of God is central to life in the kingdom of God. In Acts 2, we read that the church gathering itself was a meal. How good is that? Right? It, it doesn't say they ate before they showed up to church or they went to church and then had a potluck afterwards or went to Chili's down the street or whatever. It's that the meal itself was the main event. But a lot has changed over time. Originally, communion was a meal, not a bite of cracker and a sip of juice. It was enjoyed around a table, not in a cathedral or in pews or in rows or a warehouse. It was a joyful party more than a quiet, contemplative sacrament. And it was about not just communion with God, but communion with each other. And it was even a social justice vehicle for their time and place, giving food to the poor in the church and in the city. And it was a sign that the Holy Spirit was at work in the church. Not just that thousands of people were coming to faith, there's prophecy or healing or miracles happening in the gathering, but it's people, the family of God, eating together like a family. And when that happens, you know you're on to a move of God, which is why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gets particularly cranky about what's happening around the Lord's Supper. So turn with me in your Bibles just a few pages to the right over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like to be on the receiving end of that kind of critique from Paul? Anthem, arise. When you get together for your summer Sundays, FYI, it's not for the better, it's actually for the worse. I think our ears would perk up and we'd be going, well, what's going on right now? For in the first place, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, implying it's something else altogether. It says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's something else. It's something is missing. Something is out of sync here in what should be happening. And two assumptions we can make right off the bat based on these couple of verses. One, that Christians will gather regularly. Regularly, people, not this nonsensical 1.8 Sundays a month or whatever the new average is in America. That would have not at all been in the framework Paul is talking about. Paul assumes a weekly rhythm following the weekly rhythm of the Jewish worship calendar. To do all sorts of things like teaching, worship, eating together, praying for each other, prophesying, tongues, interpretation, serving the poor and needy, caring for each other, bringing our tithes and our offerings, being generous, meeting needs. All of those things are happening in the weekly gathering. So Paul assumes Christians are gathering regularly, which might be the first point of critique Paul might bring to us. But the second assumption we have is that Christians, when they were gathering regularly, were eating the Lord's Supper together. Over the last 2,000 years, what's been known as communion 
has taken on a few different names and it's taken on a few different forms. But regardless, it has still been at the very center of how the church of Jesus has gathered. There are six names commonly associated with eating and drinking together as a church, commonly known as communion. Six names, five of which are in scripture, one of which gets added later in church history. And they all describe different angles and facets about what it is the Corinthian church is getting so wrong with the table. Number one, communion. Probably the most common name, especially if you've spent most of your life in like the American church, like communion is probably what is most common to you. And it comes from this Greek word koinonia, which is where we get words like commune, community, companion, participation, sharing. They all come to the same root word, meaning there is a deep connection not only to God, but with each other when we gather together. There's a togetherness that's supposed to happen when the church gathers together. Number two, is the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. It's a reminder, this phrase, breaking of bread, which is what we have in Acts chapter 2, by the way. That was the phrase used to describe this meal. It was a reminder of Jesus' brokenness for us and a reminder that all of life comes from death. The breaking of bread. When Sherry, my wife, pulls out this beautiful sourdough loaf out of the oven that she's been working so hard on and cultivating her starter and it's bubbling and it's doing weird things, but it's producing this amazing, beautiful loaf. We just kind of take it out. We look at it. We admire it. Like, look at the crust. And it's like the right color, the right consistency. It's a little bit flaky on the outside. The bread is soft on the, it's like, it's so beautiful. Not like it's amazing. But as soon as we cut into it, or as soon as we break it apart in pieces, we've distorted that original image. We've broken it. It's now something else altogether. And in the same way, the breaking of the bread is a reminder of Jesus's brokenness for us. And it reminds us that all of life comes from death. To eat a steak, you got to kill a cow. To eat some bacon, you got to kill a pig. And even if you're vegan, to eat those plants, you got to kill the plants. All of life comes from death, and it's no different with Jesus. The source of our life is his death. So communion, breaking of bread. Third is the Eucharist, which seems very highbrow and high church to us today, but it was actually slang for the gathering itself. The Eucharist means the Thanksgiving, and it was slang for the church gathering. And number four, which might be my favorite, it sounds very hippie, I love it. It's called the love feast. And this word love is the Greek New Testament word for love, which is agape. It's this love that God has for us, the highest form of love. Like it's this kind of love that's to describe a feast, which is a party, not a somber, solemn, kind of liturgical, sacramental moment, but like a raucous party. It is a feast. And Paul says there is a place for that kind of quiet, somber self-examination, but it's before the table, not at the table. You do that business with God or with each other before you get to the table. And when you get to the table, it's a celebration of our status before God with one another. So before you show up to that Sunday or before you show up to that community around a table, examine yourself. Make sure you're not at odds with another brother or sister. And then it's time to party together. So communion, the breaking of bread, Eucharist, the love feast. Number five, which is what we have here in 1 Corinthians 11, is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, or the Jesus meal, was an actual meal in the evening. Sunday evening is when the church met. And it takes us back to the meal Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. It was this Passover meal, which was a symbol of 
and celebration of the covenant Old Testament people had with God. And then Jesus institutes his new covenant in that very same meal, which means the Lord's Supper is a covenantal meal. Every time you eat it, you're recommitting to the covenant, the life of being an apprentice of Jesus with your brothers and sisters, which means it's not something that's born out of convenience, but deep commitment to God and each other. It's not just a recommitment to God, but it's a recommitment to the church family. New Testament scholar and theologian N.T. Wright says this, quote, if when you break the bread, all shared in the same way, that declares powerfully that you are all one body. If you divide the room and the guests into different groups, that powerfully makes the opposite point. The body, which is supposed to be recognized as both the presence of the Lord in the Eucharistic elements and the unity of the church that shares the bread. The two belong together. Which means Jesus' presence and our unity go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Five names so far. Communion, breaking of bread, Eucharist, love feast, Lord's Supper, And then there's one other name that's associated with this meal, but it's not found in the New Testament. It's the only one that's not found in the Bible, and it's the Mass. And Mass actually comes from Latin, which wasn't used in the church until the church was institutionalized and nationalized in the fourth century. And this is where that moment, one of those biggest profound shifts in the church happens, when the movement of the church went from being a family together around a table, a meal, everyone bringing something to the table, to a more us and them formal church gathering, a formal church service. And the progression of church gatherings have kind of followed this. So the church gathering goes something like this. It started around a table and the meal, and then it went to the altar and the mass, And then it went, around the time of the Reformation, to the pulpit and the sermon being the center of gravity for the church. And then it goes to the last hundred years or so of modernity, the stage and the performance as the center of gravity for the church. That center has shifted and moved from the table to the altar, to the pulpit, to the stage. And even looking at church architecture over the last 2,000 years, you can trace the same line. The early church met in homes. Yes, they used the the colonnade and the Jewish temple from time to time, but primarily the early church were found in homes, big homes, homes that can hold dozens or hundreds of people, homes with big courtyards or big gathering halls, but still homes. And there were big tables for the first couple hundred years. This is how the church met and spread. And then suddenly when the church is institutionalized and nationalized, we have these big, beautiful cathedrals and buildings, epic artwork, huge behemoth buildings. And what's at the center of the church? It's no longer a table. It's an altar with the Eucharistic elements and the priest performing a service. And even the shape of the building in the cross, like those old cathedrals are shaped in a cross kind of shape. And right at the center is the altar. And then that goes on for, you know, a thousand or so years. The Reformation hits, and then the church architecture starts shifting once again. Instead of a cross-shaped building with an altar in the middle, it's a rectangle-shaped building with a pulpit. And the pulpit is elevated and off to the side. And once again, not entirely bad altogether, but it's simply so people could see and hear. But it was informing that no longer was the altar 
the center of church gravity and the church worship gatherings, but it was the pulpit. And so thus the sermon, the preached and taught word of God became the center of gravity. And over the last hundred years or so, we've seen the church architecture shift again from more of a traditional colonial steeple type thing with an altar and pews to like warehouses or renovated church buildings that now have these big stage with lots of lights and speakers and all the things. And once again, not inherently bad in and of itself, but it reveals that the center of gravity for the church worship gatherings have shifted yet again from the table to the altar, to the pulpit, and now the season we are in is to the stage. And what this text does for us is a radical reclaiming of the table as the center of gravity for the church worship gatherings. Because in a strange way, this progression from table to altar to pulpit to stage might be another dividing moment again for the church. Not necessarily between rich and poor, but between professionals and consumers. Which just might be something to consider. Are we profaning the gift of the Lord's Supper Maybe not in how we segregate the church, rich and poor, black and white, but by our passive consumerism or by our um, perfecting professionalism, by sitting back and critiquing, by allowing only a few people to do everything when the church gathers, and by letting those few people not empower the rest of the body to contribute to the worship gathering, by hoping and expecting someone else will do the work be on mission, serve on that team, contribute in this way, give and give generously. And we can pass the buck. Saying, I don't need to give because I know other people are. I don't need to help out on this team because I know other people are. I don't need to think about the Bible or think about teaching because I know Steve or Bert are going to show up and do that. Like what if we took 1 Corinthians 14 seriously, where everyone had something to bring to the table? Now, five out of the six names that we've talked about envision this practice as a full-on meal around a table in a home. And only one envisions this as an organized, formal moment. And it got added in later, as the church was being nationalized and institutionalized. A sober, somber, liturgical moment. It was actually supposed to be a raucous feast people gathered in a home Sunday night over a feast that was supposed to renew their commitment to God and each other. A feast that's supposed to feed the poor and the needy. A feast that allows us to worship God and all bring something to the table. The center point of the gathered church, the center point of communal worship. And Paul says, when you're doing that, you're messing it all up. It's actually for the worst. Why was it for the worst? It's not just because there were divisions in the body, although that is dangerous and harmful, but it is more than that. They were missing something else. Verse 21, for an eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. Look at Paul railing against the injustice that's happening here at the Jesus meal. Rich people were showing up early, probably because their work days were shorter than everyone else. They were getting all the good food, the good wine, the good seats. They were getting drunk. They were getting full, not leaving enough for the poor and needy among them. 
And this kind of segregation would have been totally normal in the Greco-Roman world. Rich people getting the good stuff in one room and shunning the poor people to another house with the table scraps. This should have been totally foreign in the church of Jesus. To Paul, this table, this supper was actually like not only worship, but an act of justice. It doesn't matter what your background was. Jesus brings us together. What matters when we gather is not where you come from, your social status, but Jesus at the center. Philosopher James K.A. Smith says this about the Lord's Supper, quote, We are invited to sit down for supper with the creator of the universe, to dine with the king, but we are all invited to do so, which means we need to be reconciled to one another as well. Our communion with Christ spills over into our communion as his body. There's a social, even political reality enacted here. There are no box seats at his table, no reservations for VIPs, no filet mignon for those who can afford it, while the rest get crumbs from the table. The Lord's Supper is a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities, an active active vision of a, to quote Isaiah 25, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of golden wine. The Lord's Supper isn't just a way to remember something that was accomplished in the past. It is the feast that nourishes our hearts. Here's an existential meal that retrains our deepest, most human hungers. What we see Paul getting at is this larger idea that this particular kind of pattern of sin that he's getting at blinds us, even in the worship gathering. It's the sin of not just divisions in the church, that we see in verse... 18, but is the self-centeredness we see in 21 and 22. It's this, my preference, this focus on my needs, my wants, my preferences, my happiness. This idea that I'm not going to come back to church until they have kids programs. I'm not going to go to this church because they're not liturgical enough. I'm not going to go to this church because they're too liturgical. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to do this. Church and community are now on my terms and my preference. And Paul says this kind of self-centered thinking and focus kills the church. It is a cancer in the church. When we come together, it is not for the better, it's for the worse because we're thinking about ourselves. Now in Corinth, there's this huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And rather than bringing people together, this moment was another dividing point for the rich and the poor. And then what Paul does next is he goes on to describe exactly what this is so they, so they get the proper weight of this moment. They re, he reminds them what this actually is. This is not just a fun party and a fun meal. This has theological significance to it and theological mystery attached to it. And so messing this up is not just messing up a symbol. It's messing up something so much more. Go to verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is something that Paul 
was given in his encounter with Jesus, that Jesus established with his disciples and Paul has been delivering to the churches as a regular practice. And at the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave a picture of his physical body being offered up. And in that, a new body being formed, the church. And Jesus' blood is significant in that through the blood of Christ, God has made an atonement for sin once and for all to satisfy his wrath. Jesus was offered up as a substitute for us and received the wrath of God in our place and all, in the place of all who put their faith in Jesus. So when we take the cup, we remember Jesus' sacrifice to stand in the wrath of God in our place. And when we remember him in this moment, we're remembering our reliance on him for our salvation. New Testament theologian Andrew Wilson says this, quote, Communion is not just a memorial or a symbol. It acts, bringing the church together with Christ and with one another. If we are one, he explains, because we are one, he explains, because we all share in one bread. We share a loaf of unity and a cup of blessing. As we do so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We actually participate in the body and blood of Christ. And he goes on to say that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we do things that do things. This is not an empty memorial or a rote symbol. It is this mysterious thing we enter into that do things to us, to one another. And so Paul rebukes them for how they've messed this up so mightily. He reminds them of what he's already passed down, and then he gives some instructions on how to correct the wrong way of approaching the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That is some good homework to do on your own time. Check out that verse 30. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For Paul, getting this wrong is mortally serious. So Paul makes it clear, if you take communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner, using it to divide the body of Christ rather than unify it, using it to promote and give platform to your own self-centeredness rather than submitting to the body, you are guilty of violating the thing that has been given to us to bring us together under one healing name. When Christians come together to receive communion, it's the place where on an ongoing basis, we accept that we are sinners and Christ has died to overcome that verdict. Thus abusing communion is taking lightly or all out rejecting the work of Christ on our behalf. And the only way to avoid this is to truly examine ourselves in a repentant posture, ready to reconcile any broken relationships in the community. And Paul's final thought is a really practical one. If you're tempted to abuse the body of Christ for your own personal gain, you better change right now. Verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. The beauty and the power of the gospel on display in the Lord's Supper it's not inevitable. 
We have the ability to put the glorious power of God through Jesus on display in how we approach communion or not. Or we can demonstrate it to be a token, faithless moment that does not represent the transforming work that has taken place in our souls and in our community. So in a community and a Sunday gathering and a meal with friends and family and a gathered worship as response, how do we receive the Lord's Supper? With glad and thankful hearts and a posture of worship and a posture that says, Lord, everything is yours and a posture that says, I can't save myself, only you can. Or in a posture that thinks of me. How can I get the most out of this moment, this event, this group of people? Michael Green gives a great summary of the theology of the Lord's Supper. And he gives us six directions that we look as we receive communion. One is we look back to Christ's death. Remember his sacrifice for our salvation. Two, we look inward in self-reflection, self-examination, examining our motives, our priorities, our heart posture. Three, we look up to fellowship with God. We abide in Christ. And so as we receive communion, we remember that the creator of the universe is enjoying our presence and we are enjoying his. Four, we look around to fellowship with each other, the community of God that he has placed us in. Five, we look forward to Christ's return as the source of all of our hope. We are participating in an act that not only looks back, but looks forward to Christ. And six, we look outward, right? We, we look to the world to proclaim God's word to others. So in those six areas, look back, look in, look up, look around, look forward, look outward. I have one question. Where are you missing it? Now, I'll just, I'll help you out here. We're all missing it in some way. No one has got this perfectly dialed in. So I'll just say, it's not if you're missing it, but where are you missing it? Where might Paul bring correction to you? Where do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you change? Where, where might he be leading us towards greater compassion, towards greater worship, towards greater generosity, towards greater mission? And just a pastoral hint, whichever one of those directions you are most resistant to, chances are that's the one that the Holy Spirit might want to do more work in you with, not less. The Lord's Supper was exactly originally what it sounds like, a supper. It was a meal, a meal around a table with Jesus' disciples. It's a powerful practice. It transforms, it changed the early church, it changed the disciples, and it changed the Roman Empire. Could it change our world yet again? Let me pray for you. Jesus, as we approach your scriptures, as we approach the table and we consider all that it means, I'm humbled, I'm awed, I'm, I'm in gratitude, and just ask for your help, Holy Spirit, as we look inward into self-introspection, examining our motives and asking, like the psalmist says in 139, search me, O Lord. Know my heart. Know my motives. We ask that you'd reveal to us where we're missing it, that we would have the confidence, that we'd have the boldness to ask where we're we missing it, and that we'd have the follow-through to invite your Holy Spirit to help us change. This is a simple 
yet profound practice that so changed the world. And so, Jesus, would you help us as we receive it with glad and generous hearts, help us to change our city through eating and drinking together, remembering you, enjoying one another. Would it be just as transformative then, now? We ask for your help and your blessing and your grace and your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.